1: Hello listeners, I'm Amy McKinnon, National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Are you overwhelmed by the sheer number of podcasts out there, feeling spoiled for choice? Well then let us be your guide. Each week we will recommend one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring Overheard at National Geographic, which is now in its sixth season. If you've ever wondered what it might be like to go for a beer with the explorers and scientists at National Geographic and hear firsthand all of the incredible tales they have to tell from their travels, that's basically what this show is about. Overheard tells the story behind the story that you see in National Geographic. On the episode that we're going to feature today, hear from National Geographic photographer Keely Wien, who spent months camping on sea ice with Inupiaq whale hunters in the Arctic, and how climate change is threatening this ancient tradition. But first, I spoke to Eli Chen, a senior editor at Overheard, about the ideas behind the series. I love your series and I also love the title because I also think it kind of a little bit resonates with the the foreign policy newsroom like if people could overhear the conversations that we have they're not as exciting as Nat Geo like sending photographers off to all these amazing places in the world but um we do have intensely nerdy very specific conversations um I think of National Geographic as a very visual medium obviously you have incredible reporters that write for you but like it's the the that feeling of like that like that glossy magazine feel, these beautiful pictures. How has it been translating that into like a rich storytelling audio experience? And how do you work with your reporters and your photographers to kind of to get that?
2: Yeah, I love this question because, uh, you know, when I when I got into radio about a decade ago, I was told that you know radio is really theater of the mind it's um it's in fact in some ways the most visual medium because if radio is done really well you can really see in your mind you know what the what the reporter is portraying to you totally and that's something that we try to accomplish in you know 25 minutes of an overheard episode is getting so descriptive and so visceral with what we're what we're trying to describe um you know, in whatever part of the world we're in, uh, you know, these stories that, um, that take you to such different places that you feel, you feel like immersed in the story that's being told. And, you know, I, I just worked on a piece um, about the adventures of one of our photographers, Keely Weehan. And, you know, he was so descriptive, about, you know, what it was like to be out there on the arctic ice sort of camping with these indigenous whale hunters that, you know, especially with the the sound that he gave us, the the sound that he captured of like seeing bearded seals underwater or the sounds of, you know, bowhead whales. Um, you know, I really felt like I was out there.
1: All of your staff and contributors must come back with incredible tales from where they go. But what for you makes yes. for a great overheard story? What do you what do you
2: look for and say that's that's an episode? One of the most important things is uh, having a good character to lead you down that path. Um, whether it's one of the Nat Geo explorers, um, a journalist, photographer, you know, there's um, there's usually a Nat Geo connection to every one of our episodes. So that's something we look for. But we also, you know, you're not going to listen to something that's told by mm-hmm. somebody very dull. You're, you want someone very engaging to sort of bring you down um, the path of an unusual and strange story, which is what we try to accomplish with most of our episodes. And we try to find... You know, sort of an element of like mystery or surprise or something that will you know captivate you to want to know more about what this story is about, so you know in the case of in the case of the snow leopard mm-hmm. episode earlier this year, you know how how you know how do you find snow leopards? This is something that people have wanted like there for a really long time there had only just been one or a few photographs of actual snow leopards in the Himalayas. Um, Nowadays, there are lots of people with photos of them because tourism has grown so much. But, you know, there's that sort of intrigue that we try to that we try to insert in each episode. Um, I'm also thinking about um, this other this other piece that uh, that one of my producers is working on when we first joined about, um, the world's largest, largest tornado, which is the El Reno tornado that happened in Oklahoma, you know, I think a couple of decades ago. And it was this tornado that killed, um, you know, that killed storm chasers for the first time. I think it was, um, it was a really great story in that, you know, there was, um, there were, you know, really interesting characters involved, wow. um, and there was this really uh, kind of fantastic natural event that you know caused people to um, have a different have a different look at you know storms and and what they mean to us and what can we can do about them. So you know you what we what we try to do, especially at the end of each episode, is come away with um, a different view of a subject, if that makes sense. One thing we, I want to add, um, about where overheard is headed. Um, you know, it's been, it's been sort of two years of all kinds of stories, but, um, something that we're really Mm. trying to focus on going forward is showcasing, you know, explorers from, you know, all different backgrounds, you know, because, uh, the experiences, especially of, you know, um, of nat Geo's black explorers they haven't gotten the spotlight as much as some of the others um and you know they're out there doing amazing stories they're you know they're exploring um you know we, we have plans to showcase um folks who are out trying to you know trying to understand how wildfires are affecting the environment or um or you know doing things like exploring our urban environments and so we want to we want to touch on that as well and you know the keely the keely Wien episode is is an example of like our you know us reaching out to um communities or trying to showcase stories that haven't been told as much you know keely something he does really well is try to try to understand, you know, how the, how the indigenous community sees itself. And um, as a, because so many, so many stories about native people have been mm-hmm, sort of filtered mm-hmm. through like a white anthropological lens. Um, and, you know, even, even in journalism, you know, you can't, it's hard to get away from that lens. And so he's someone who's really taken the time to immerse himself in a community Mm-hmm. and, you know, know how to tell stories about them.
1: As our listeners will learn in the episode, his family is from an indigenous group in Siberia, and that gives him a different perspective on on working with the Inupiaq people um, in the Arctic, and, and I think he really brings that to, to bear in the episode.
2: One of the things that I was aware of going into this is that this is, you know, if presented in one way, people might wonder, you know, people might wonder you know if it's if it's a good thing that you know this um that this indigenous group is hunting bowhead whales but what Keeley does is he he helps you understand that this is this is a part of like a very old heritage you know hunting bowhead whales is done in a very particular way by the inupiaq people and they have been doing so for thousands of years and you know mm-hmm. And they've also, you know, done a lot to oppose commercial whaling and other things that actually threaten bowhead whales. And so this is so the story here is very complicated. Um, And and it really and it really shows why these people um, are really key to conserving, you know, this this animal species. And that's that's what. I think this—it's not just this story, but some of other, some of Keeley's other reporting that um, I believe is ongoing—really shows that you know Native people need to be part of the conversation when it comes to conservation and the environment, and oftentimes they've been really left out of it. So, you know, you know, even though we package this story as like oh here's this adventure story about a photographer who went out camping with indigenous hunters and had to escape collapsing sea ice and you know face off with a you know polar bear that wanted to like you know eat them it's there's there's a lot there's just a lot more to that and you come away hopefully with the fact that you know the Arctic has been changed so much by climate change and has really changed these people's lives. Thank you so much for making the time.
1: Uh, it was great to
2: hear hear more about Overheard and how you, how you put it together. Awesome. Um, Amy, thank you so much for your time. That was
1: Eli Chen, Senior Editor at Overheard at National Geographic. And now here's the episode from their latest season, Camping on Sea Ice with Whale Hunters.
0: An Ivu is an amazing word for something terrifying. <laughs> it is when the pack ice that is floating on the other side of the ocean gets pushed by the wind and it comes in and impacts the ice that we're standing
3: on. This is photographer Keely Rien. In 2018, he was on his first National Geographic assignment north of the Arctic Circle near Utkayagvik, Alaska he was documenting the bowhead whale hunting rituals of the Inupiaq people. And to do this, he camped with the native hunters for weeks on Arctic ice, where temperatures stay below freezing and there's nothing but ice and sea for miles. There was one whaling season when we happened to put our camp on
0: a place where we knew that the ice was um, a little bit unstable, that there was a crack in the ice
3: between the land and where we were. So Keeley shared the story of this journey and other adventures with our senior editor, Eli Chin. Hey Eli, welcome to the microphone. We're dragging you from behind (laughs) your editor's desk and throwing you in the mix here. This sounds like a crazy story.
2: Yeah, it is, Peter. So that day, Keely had been camping with a whaling crew on sea ice, of all places.
3: Yeah, this sounds really dicey.
2: Oh, totally. I mean, Keely is thrilled to be there, but all sorts of things can go wrong.
0: And so we kind of always had someone going back and forth to check on this little crack in the ice and make sure that we weren't gonna crack off and just float away <laughs> somewhere, which definitely happens.
3: Yeah, total nightmare scenario. So how do you even prepare yourself for an adventure like this?
0: Well,
2: one of the things the crew did was sleep fully dressed every night in case of an emergency. One night, it was Keeley's turn to keep a lookout for any evus, and that's when he heard
0: some rumbling. And uh, one of our guys came down racing on a snow machine and he came up and he was like, we got to go, we got to go right now, you know, and I knew right away, like, okay, this is the time. Okay, so how does an Evu happen?
2: Well, the way an Evu happens is kind of like plate tectonics. One plate of ice that could be several miles wide and many meters thick slowly moves and hits another plate of ice. Keeley says that can buckle all that ice in as far in as three miles.
0: So we have to get off of that ice as fast as possible.
2: Keeley woke the captain and the entire crew rushed to gather all their belongings into their skin boat. And that took about 15 minutes. But what was really memorable for Keeley was how the ice
0: felt under his feet. And what was really creepy about that moment was that as we were packing everything up, I suddenly felt it. I felt this like this thing that was unsettling, and I didn't quite know what it was at first. And then I realized what what it was, was that the piece of ice that we were standing on was bobbing up and down. Like it no longer felt like solid ground the way it normally feels, but it felt like, oh, we're floating on something. And that's the really unsettling feeling.
2: That's crazy. What was sort of going through
0: your mind at the time? You know, it was a bummer that I couldn't film it, really. um... You know, I mean, like this, this moment is happening. This is an incredibly dangerous moment. And I was thinking, gosh, when things are going wrong, that's when you need to have the camera out. That's when you're photographing because these are the things that are happening that are real that people don't get a chance to experience and understand what it, what it is. But I also knew absolutely that the number one priority was making sure that we were all safe and that the gear was safe and that, uh, you know, like the captain would toss me off the crew in a second if he saw me taking a picture instead of working on everything.
2: I'm Eli Chen, and you're listening to Overheard at National Geographic, a show where we eavesdrop on the wild conversations we have at NatGeo and follow them to the edges of our big, weird, beautiful world. This week, a photographer shares what he experienced over five years while camping on sea ice with native Arctic whale hunters and how climate change is increasingly becoming a threat to the lives of these hunters and could forever change their ancient traditions. More after this. Every spring, the ice that stretches from the North Pole all the way to Alaska cracks and melts and gives way to the ocean. When that happens, the Inupiaq do what they've done for thousands of years. Men and women head out to where the ice meets the sea and look for bowhead whales as they begin their migration from the Bering Sea to the Canadian Arctic. The black-bodied whales have triangle-shaped heads that they use to break through the ice— and they can live up to 200 years, making them one of the longest living mammals in the world. And when they spot the whales, hunting crews set out on umiaks, long boats made of animal hide, in hopes of catching bowhead whales.
0: I love being out. I'll like wake up at 10 p.m. and then be up through the night.
2: Keely spent collectively 10 months over five years with these whaling crews, He often volunteered to be the night watch, keeping an eye out for evus and other threats. The skies are often overcast, but during the spring, it's light out all through the night.
0: The light is glorious and it's beautiful. It's like sunset for several hours of the day uh, because it's 24 hour light. And I wake up, I just go out, um, and I sit down at the windbreak, which is basically one of the sleds put on top of big blocks of ice.
2: It's mostly quiet, until the wildlife start to sing.
0: And then I I hear the bowhead whales going off in the distance. (sighs) You know, coming up and then, you know, I can hear the eiders flying by, you know, as they migrate by. And I just like, after a while, kind of on those really good days, I just sort of lose myself. You know, I don't know where I end and the sea ice begins, you know, it's all just one continuous thing that's happening.
2: The hunters also listen for wildlife in the water. Keeley would watch a co-captain of the crew stick a wooden paddle in the water and plant the end of the paddle to his ear to listen for sounds of whales.
0: You hear this deep droning sound, like a deep male opera singer kind of, and it just goes on and it's very slow. And then there's the bearded seals who are singing almost like sort of like pop singers. You know, they're like... It's, it's very um, flighty and uh, full of different ups and downs, and it's really quick.
2: Access to fruits and vegetables is extremely limited in northern Alaska, so the Inupiaq heavily depend on muktuk or whale skin and blubber, for essential vitamins and nutrients. Their diet also includes seals, walruses, and other Arctic animals, so the Inupiaq people learn how to hunt in childhood.
0: A lot of my Inupiaq friends will say that the ocean is our garden because all the food in the form of marine mammals and animals that, you know, come from the ocean.
2: The whale also feeds them spiritually. It's so central to their culture that every spring, they hold a festival where everyone in the community gets a share of the maktak. And for three days, they sing traditional songs, dance, tell stories, and celebrate what the whale has given them. How many whales might these hunters capture in a season?
0: The village of Uk'yadik normally gets around six or seven whales in in the season. Uh, You know, it can vary a lot.
2: But Keeley says the Arctic environment has changed drastically in recent years, and that's had a real impact on whale hunting. He says last year was the first season where no one caught any using a traditional skin boat. They had to use a motorboat to catch them.
0: And that was a really big deal. That was an enormous deal because um, no one understood why the whales weren't coming. As it turns out, it's probably climate change related because the ice had receded so much.
2: Arctic ice has been melting at alarming rates because of rising global temperatures. And the increasing ice melt means more open water up in the Arctic and more distance between the ice and the whales.
0: So um, they weren't getting close enough for, for um, the hunters to access. So that turns out to be a big problem because those whales feed a lot of people.
2: When the crew sees a whale, they'll rush from the ice into their boat, row right up to the whale, and spear it using harpoons. Then they'll tie a rope around its tail and tow it back to the village. Once they get there, they have to pull this whale ashore, an animal that can weigh more than 60 tons.
0: There is about 50 people pulling on it with a rope that goes through a series of pulleys. And the bulk of the whale is still in the ocean.
2: Keeley saw this tug of war between about 50 people and one huge whale. And while people are trying to pull the whale, sheets of ice will break off from under them, under the sheer pressure of the whale's
0: weight. So that's really not good because that means every time the whale breaks through and breaks chunks of ice, that means we lose hours of work because it takes... Hours and hours and hours to pull up a whale with all of these people and uh, a lot of blood, sweat and tears (laughs) um, to get the whale up.
2: The crew will try their best to find a thick body of ice to pull the whale up on, but...
0: Sea ice is so thin now that it's really hard to find any place to pull up the whales at all.
2: Keeley knows that whale hunting can be a touchy subject, especially with the general public.
0: Like I see in my Instagram comments, and I know that when I talk about whaling, that for um, non-Indigenous peoples, the first thing they think of is, oh my God, how can you guys be hunting whales, these beautiful creatures, when there's so few whales left?
2: Keeley says the Inupiaq have hunted bowhead whales for so long that they have tactics for hunting them without over-harvesting them.
0: They need know which ones are pregnant females and they won't hunt those. There's a strong taboo on that. They know which ones to chase down and how to hunt, what seasons to hunt. And they do things like hunt from traditional skin boats to make sure that the take isn't too large, etc.
2: But commercial whaling that started in the 18th century and lasted until the early 20th century decimated the bowhead whale population. The International Whaling Commission then tried to ban Alaskan native bowhead whaling in 1977, and the Inupiaq fought for the right to hunt and manage their own bowhead whale population. Keeley says that the population rose after the Inupiaq began managing it.
0: The bowhead whale population has literally tripled in uh, the last 40 years. It's an amazing, amazing feat. And now Inupiaq are known as the poster children for, uh, for indigenous traditional knowledge.
2: The Inopiac want to protect the species to preserve their ancient culture and ensure that the whales will be around for their children and many generations after that.
0: Conserving the land is all about having a relationship with the things in it. If we don't have our hands in the water, if we don't have our hands on the wildlife, you know, if we aren't deeply engaged, if they're not feeding us, you know, literally feeding us, then we forget about them.
2: So, as we've established, trying to catch a whale is hard work. And on top of that, the Inupiaq hunters also have to deal with another major threat, one that's gotten worse in recent years.
0: Do you want to hear about the polar bear attack? Sure. That's a good one.
2: <laughs> yeah, tell me about the polar bear attack. Just to set up this story, Keely's on his first trip with an Inupiaq whaling crew. They spent a pretty exhausting week chopping down ice mountains, the ice is full of them. And they'd made their way to the edge of the ice sheet to set up camp.
0: And we, we get there, and everyone's relaxing for the first moment of time.
2: But even when you're tired, you have to stay vigilant.
0: And then all of a sudden, I hear nanuk nanuk, which means polar bear in Yupik. When I heard that, like I could just sort of feel all of, all of my senses, like snap into sharp relief. I was like, oh my God, something is happening big time, you know, and uh, my first thought was, oh gosh, there's a polar bear out there. Do I have the right lens on?
2: (laughs) Keely and other members of the crew didn't see the polar bear at first. They looked all over the horizon for it.
0: And then I see it all of a sudden and it's right there. And I realized that I've been looking like out on the horizon, and it's not on the horizon. It's way closer. It's less than 15 yards away from us, like, which is very close. That is way too close for a m- massive predator like that.
2: The polar bear looked like it was going to charge at them. Keely remembers one crew member next to him searching through his pockets.
0: He's got a rifle in his hand, and the bolt is, uh, you know, the chamber is empty. He's looking around for bullets. But there's no bullets in any of his, um, he It got no ammo in any of his pockets or anything.
2: And then another crew member, a hunter named Mukalik sprang into action.
0: And he has grabbed his rifle and spun around 180 degrees and taken a shot before he's even stopped moving. And this polar bear, which is in mid motion, just collapses to the ground and skids forward
2: Mukulik hit the bear right in the spine, killing it immediately.
0: My heart is racing, of course, and and we're waiting and the polar bear is just lying there. I'm not moving or anything, but everyone knows that it's still dangerous.
2: The crew throws some blocks of ice at the bear, just to make sure it's dead. Then they go over to inspect it.
0: One of the things that was surprising to me was when we opened its mouth, you could see that of the four canine teeth, these giant, these massive, you know, like, human thumb-sized teeth, that um, two of the four were broken, and they had cavities.
2: Keeley says the cavities indicate that the bear is old or diseased. The men also noticed it was really skinny, and they wondered why the polar bear was there.
0: Uh, Nanook is not a stupid animal. They would never attack a group of, of men like that, even though it's this large, massive predator, because animals in the wild, they don't take chances. They don't take risks. They have to know that they're not going to get injured in the process.
2: So they followed the bear's tracks in the snow.
0: And what we found was even more chilling, actually.
2: Basically, they traced the Nanuk steps back to an area where two crewmen had been repairing snow machines. It looked like the bear positioned itself to attack the men. But just then, they had finished repairs and headed back to rejoin the crew.
0: So the polar bear had seen that. And you can kind of see it's pacing around a little bit, trying to figure out what to do.
2: Then it crept to where there were a bunch of giant boulders big enough for it to hide.
0: You know, we'd walk for a little bit, then it would crawl for a little bit until it got so close that um, that it was right underneath us, you know, it's just an amazing thing.
2: These conflicts between polar bears and people are happening so often now that they've become a part of life for people in the Arctic. That's in large part due to climate change melting the ice that seals and other animals depend on. When the ice retreats in the summer, bears will follow the ice and the seals that live on it. They'll travel hundreds of miles to stay near their food source. But catching a seal in open water is more difficult than catching one on ice. So when prey is hard to find, the Nanuk come after people.
0: If anyone goes anywhere, you have to have a rifle.
2: That includes the teenage boys on the whaling cruise.
0: You never go more than 30 yards away from the tent or from another person even to take a poop (laughs) because really you you know there's a very good chance that a polar bear is right behind an ice boulder that you are walking towards and it will grab you and you will be dead before anyone can help you
2: more after this
0: my name's kurt jaimungal and this is the theories of everything podcast the show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring Grand Unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Vervecki. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms.
2: When you make it back home after fleeing collapsing sea ice, surviving attacks from polar bears, and towing home a massive whale, it's time to celebrate.
0: The whaling festival called Nelukatak is um, its just an amazing thing. It's the moment in time when it becomes really clear that uh, whale hunting isn't just about eating the food, but that it's uh, very much about the gift of the whale. Get up! One, two,
3: three...
2: Everyone gets their share of the whale meat, and for multiple days, they sing, dance, and jump on the traditional trampoline. Dozens of Inupiaq people will hold a blanket that's made of seal, walrus, or whale, and they'll hold it taut to turn it into a trampoline. It's tradition for the whaling captain and his wife to jump first. Then people will take turns, jumping as high as 20, 30 feet in the air. Wait for him! Go! Keeley says it's scenes like this that showed him what story he was really there to tell.
0: You know, I came in thinking that this would be a great story about uh, whaling and the whale hunt and realized eventually that what it was really about was community, about how community comes together and about the relationship between the bowhead whale and the Ndiang people.
2: Go! It's worth mentioning that Keeley has a personal connection to indigenous people. Could you talk about why you're drawn to Native communities and telling stories about them?
0: Yeah, I think in a lot of ways the, the biggest draw for me is wanting to get something back that I had lost.
2: Keeley is Chinese-American and Nanai, or a Siberian Native. During the Communist Revolution, Keeley's parents fled China for the United States
0: with the communist revolution in China that really kind of took away my homeland from my parents and myself. You know, we were forced to migrate and forced to leave. My parents were refugees, um, which is the story of so many so many East Asian people. And so I, for me, going to these indigenous communities is a way for me to feel like I was getting a part of that back.
2: His name, Keeley, is also connected to folklore. As a kid, Keely grew up hearing mythical stories told to him by his grandmother, who grew up with the Nanai tribe. These are hunter-gatherers who live alongside the Heilongjiang River, which separates China and Russia. One of these stories is about a hero named Keely, a man who could transform into an orca whale.
0: You know, I think to myself, gosh, why did I become so interested in hunting and fishing and being out on the land and interested in people who were living so close in that relationship. And that's absolutely due to my grandmother just sort of filling my head with all these cool stories, which I think as a kid really swept me away.
2: Keeley says many stories about indigenous people are told through a Western, Eurocentric lens, which may not take into account cultural differences and the ways they affect how a journalist reports a story.
0: And one of those things is permission. You know, in Western culture, for the most part, you have the ability, I mean, you can do anything you want to unless told otherwise. But for indigenous communities, it's the other way around you really don't have permission to do anything unless you've been specifically allowed to. So it's a huge difference in the way that things work.
2: Most news organizations, including National Geographic, have a policy of not compensating interview subjects. But the Inupiaq culture operates on a gift economy, so Keeley has made sure to give something in return to the people he's documented.
0: It is important to acknowledge that when they're sharing of themselves and sharing their stories and sharing their uh, culture and family lineage, that's respected. And that, that is um, you understand that that's a real, true contribution. So the thing that I do is I try to make sure that anyone I take a portrait of gets a print in the mail. No matter where it is they live, I always make sure to send them that. And if I tell someone that I'm going to send them a, a picture, I, I do. And
2: Keeley says news publications often will parachute a reporter into an indigenous community for a very brief amount of time. He says journalists need to spend months and years to build trust with Native people.
0: Even though I have indigenous ancestry, that doesn't mean that I understand what's going on in the community either. But at least I know well enough to spend a lot of time in a place to be really open-minded and to try to understand that the culture that i am learning about and spend weeks months there to finally get in to be able to put on a pair of goggles that allows me to see from say like the inupiaq point of view
2: and that's why he spent years with the inupiaq
0: so when you come back it it shows to people that you are actually committed that you really want to be there you really want to share the story and It becomes this magical thing when people see you again, they're like, oh, hey, I know you, you're my friend, you know, let's hang out together. And also that happens to be the best part of the job. It's just hanging out with people getting to spend time with them and um, living, you know, it's just that part of living, which is really wonderful. I love that part of it.
2: If you'd like to learn more about bowhead whales and even hear their songs, we have a story in our show notes featuring recordings of their wild sounds. We also have more in depth coverage on the challenges facing polar bears in the Arctic. To see Keely's stunning photography and short film about the Inupiaq people and their whale hunting traditions, NatGeo subscribers can check them out in an online story titled Meet the Bowhead Whale Hunters of Northern Alaska. You can also follow Keely on Instagram at KeelyUyan. That's K I L I I I Y U Y A N where you can see amazing portraits he's taken of Native people, wildlife, and maybe my favorite thing, kayaks that he built himself. That's all in the show notes right there in your podcast app.
1: And that was the episode Camping on Sea Ice with Whale Hunters. My thanks to National Geographic for sharing their podcast with us. Make sure to check out all six seasons wherever you get your podcasts or online at nationalgeographic.com. That's all for Farm Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at This show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and it is produced by Darcy Palder, Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin, and Simone Perez. Our Executive Producer of Podcasts is Dan Efron.
0: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
2: It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.